Good morning. Uh, is my mic on? Oh, it's weird. I thought I said good morning, but I'm sorry. Good morning. All right. Cool. My name's Chris. I've been attending BC here for close to five years. I've been a member for closer to three. My wife and I um, live here in Hannibal, and the elders have asked me to preach this morning as part of preparation for Tatum and I's plans for overseas service through the International Mission Board with the the Howards who are coming next week and which we'll we'll hear from them. So Dr. Daniel Bourne and I have been meeting um, over the last six to eight months with the focus of preparing for the the position of kind of what a pastor would be in East Asia. So as, as part of that training this morning, so uh, th- this morning I'll be teaching, um, and this is a, uh, a, a first Sunday, and on the first and third Sundays we, we allow the kids to stay in service with us, partly as a, a practical reminder that while in service kids are not distractions, but they are, are people created in the image of God who, who need to hear the gospel in, in a weekly setting just like the rest of us. So kids, where, where are you? Raise your hand so I can get an idea of, of where we are. All right, so kids, this morning we're going to be in Psalm 63, which is a psalm written by David while he's in the wilderness. And so, so kids, how many of you have ever been in a situation where you have been scared or feel helpless? Raise your hands if you've ever been, been in a situation like that. All right, so what are some of the things that, that you've been scared about when, you, when you've been in that situation? What are the things that scare you? Noah? Tornado alert, like the, the warning going on about a tornado. Yeah, what else? Johnny? What was that? That he wouldn't get a job. That's also a scary thing. <laughs> yeah, especially for a kid. I can't imagine. Um, all right, what, what else? Is there anything else? Yeah, Drew. Yeah, so feeling like you're trapped in the water and, the, and that there's no escape. It's also a scary thing. Yeah, so, yeah, what's up? The flood? Yeah, which could then result in feeling trapped in water as well. Yeah, um, so those are all, all scary things. So what do you usually do when you feel scared? Or who do you call to for help when you feel scared? Drew? <laughs> Ghostbusters. Yeah, yeah. Who else? <laughs> Johnny? God? Yeah. Great person to call to for help. All right. So what kids are scared of, of spiders or, or when they wake up at night, maybe they feel alone and it's dark and that's a little scary? Yeah. Who do you call for during times like that? Do you call for like your, your parents and God? Yeah. But a lot of times we, we call for immediate help from our parents, right? Like, that, that's someone who we, we would ask help for, like, hey, mom, help me, dad, help me, I'm scared. Uh, why would you guys call to your parents? Yeah, absolutely, you can trust them. Yeah, why, why else? Is there, is there any other reasons that we, we should call to our parents for help? That you're getting hurt, yeah, so you have a need for your parents. Yeah, for sure. You're scared of tarantulas. Yeah, so maybe your parents can help you, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So in the, in the psalm, 
Psalm 63, we're going to see that David is in a situation where he's probably experiencing fear and he's, he's experiencing like helplessness and he needs someone to help him. So he calls upon God who, like your parents, are one, capable of helping you, and two, they love you enough to help you. And so without one or, or the other of those things, that's not good news for us. If God is only capable of helping us, but doesn't love us enough to help us, then we have the possibility of help with no confidence in the help. But if he only loves us and isn't capable of helping us, we have someone who's going to be near to us who's in just as much trouble as we are. But we're going to see in this psalm, Psalm 63, that David can call upon God because God loves him and he's both able to help him. So kids, after the service today and during the service, I want you to listen and and see how David knows that he can trust God, um, how David sees that God is capable of helping him, and and why David calls upon God. Um, But after the service, I want you to ask your parents if they've been in situations before where where they've felt helpless, and then they've seen God deliver them from those situations. Um, So parents, I think that's a good way for, for BC to come along you in discipling your kids this morning. So we're going to open up into Psalm 63 all together now, um, and I'll go ahead and, and read through that. I don't know what page number it is in the books that are lying under your seats, but I'm sure you can find it. It's kind of in the middle, and then go from there. So Psalm 63, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you've given us your word, that, that we, can, we can explore and, and we can understand so that we can know you better, God, so that we can see the beauty of, of who you are and the blessings that, that we are able to receive because, because we know you. God, I pray that you would be made known this morning more among us. pray these things in, in Jesus' name. Amen. So something I, I want to say before I begin, um, which I forgot already, uh, is that the elders have asked me to, to speak this morning, and um, that's such a, a blessing, and it's something that's very exciting, but it's also something that can, can bring about nerves as well. But, but I'm, I'm very excited, and uh, I feel blessed to be able to, to hopefully be an instrument that God uses for the sharpening of your guys' lives this morning, but also I can be confident knowing that your salvation and your sanctification is not dependent on a message that you hear this morning, but it's dependent on the finished work of Christ on your behalf. And that's good news for you, and that's good, for new, good news for me this morning as well. So with that being said, we can dive back into to Psalm 63. So verse 1, David opens up and he says, Oh God, 
You are my God. So this is the plea which we hear often from David in, in many psalms. And, and this, this here, this first stanza, acts as the foundation for the rest of the entire psalm. So without the first stanza where David here pleads to God and affirms that God is, is both real, that God exists, and that God is David's God, the rest of the psalm cannot exist. It's, it's from this stanza that the rest of the worship that David has flows from. So without this, this is the foundation of the psalm. Without, without this, the rest of the psalm doesn't exist. So this is foundational to, to the rest of what we're going to see about God and about the blessings that David receives from God through the rest of this psalm. And this is a point where, where David, it says it's a psalm of David, so we can trust that it's a Davidic psalm, um, that he was in the wilderness of Judah. So this is a, a, a psalm that David, while he's king, which we know that he says in, in verse 11, but the king shall rejoice in God. So David at this point is king, and he's, he's, he has fleed Israel, and he's now in the wilderness. And because of this, we can assume that this is not a time where David has fleed from Saul, but from his son Absalom, because if Saul was king, while he was fleeing, David would not have referred to himself as king. So we can assume that this is a time where he's fleeing from Absalom, um, which has put David in a very unique situation to where he is the rightful and the anointed king, yet he's been betrayed by a son whom he dearly loves. So right now, David is experiencing this as the, the king who has been betrayed by his child, while in other times of David's life, he has been the child who has betrayed the king. So there's this intimate, like, relationship here that's been fostered through the situation between God and David to where I think David has, has understand a little bit more about God's relationship with his children. But even with that, David pleads to God, oh God, you are my God. And this is incredibly foundational. And it's because of this that David can continue to say, earnestly I seek you, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So it is because God is David's God that David seeks and thirsts for God. And it is because God and David's God that there is something to thirst for. So with, with David saying, oh God, you are my God, this is referring back to God's covenant with Abraham, where God gives the covenant to Abraham and then says, and I will be their God. So because of that, David is here like we're, we're saying, God, you exist. You, you are real, you are my God, and because of those things, I can be confident in the fact that you will fulfill the promises that you have made for me to, to bless me. So even though David is in the wilderness, he, he's in an, 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 an area where he's, he's probably lonely, it's, it's desolate, there's not a lot going around over him, he's fleeing for his life, there's, people, there's, there's an imminent threat uh, pursuing David, he is able to say, God, you are my God. I'm confident in who you are because you have been faithful in the past. And then because of that, he can say, earnestly, I seek you and I thirst for you. So in the wilderness, we see that David isn't first seeking shelter or water or food, but he's first seeking God. And then in the wilderness, David isn't thirsting just in a physical sense for water, but it's his soul. It's, it's something deeper rooted in him that's thirst for the Lord instead of the immediate satisfaction of a drink of that a drink of water would provide. And so David understands that while his needs and some of his desires are for other things, his greatest need and his greatest desire is for the Lord. Um, all other things are secondary desires at this point in David's life. And we, we see also that, that this desire, that this soul longing for God has, inf 
has affected David's entire being. It says, my, my flesh faints for you. So it's not just the spiritual desire for God. It's this all-encompassing desire that has affected all of who David is. So David desires God so much that my flesh faints for you because I'm in a dry and weary land where there's no water. There's nothing else here for me. I need you. And there's this place where there's, there's no food where David can find satisfaction. There's no water where David can find satisfaction. There's no community where David can find satisfaction. He needs God and he desires for God alone. And David here compares his desires and thirst for one who is in a dry and leery land, dry and weary land where there's no water, which is an incredible image of the wilderness of sinful world. So even while at times in David's life, he hasn't been in the wilderness of Judah, David has been in the wilderness of the world that has been corrupted by sin. So even while David was king, he had as much water as he needed, he had as much food as he wanted, he had as much community as he wanted, he had anything that he could ask for. David still understands that, that this is still a wilderness of sin. The world that we live in is, is still a wilderness where we journey through that has nothing else to offer for us. So David still is saying that, that like the world here can be like related to a wilderness where there is no water because this world has nothing else to offer. So even when times where David isn't in the wilderness of Judah, there's still nothing more that he desires than God. So it's an image of of what this world looks like, but it's also like his literal, actual situation. Like David is actually in a dry and weary land where there's no water. Um, even though he, he, he's surrounded by the land that, that the milk and honey flow from, like he's in this desert right now. So David has experienced the blessings of God, but in this actual situation is in, is in a place where there's nothing to offer him. But even so, David trusts that God will provide for his spiritual thirst and his, and his uh, phys- physical needs. And I think this echoes a lot back to, to Psalms 23, um, where it says, um, He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So which in that same psalm, David pleads to his shepherd and, and, and sees that there's nothing else that he can want besides his shepherd. David also sees that while he's in this wilderness, while he's in the valley of the shadow of death, like God has been faithful before. Um, at this point, it seems that Psalms 23 would have been written before. And because we know or we can assume that if this is a time where David is fleeing from Absalom in the, in the wilderness, that means that before David has fleed from Saul in the wilderness. So David has been in like this very similar situation before. And he, and he can bank on like the faithfulness that he has seen God exhibit in his life, um, prior to this, this current situation. Um, so because of this, David can trust that God will provide for his spiritual thirst. So because David has been in this situation before and he's seen the faithfulness of God who is his shepherd, um, he knows that God will lead him to green pastures. He knows that God will lead him to still waters. He knows that God will restore his soul. He knows that God will lead him in paths of righteousness. He knows that there is nothing to fear because God is with him. He knows that these things because he has seen God do them before. And he knows that ultimately, if God doesn't deliver him from this wilderness of Judah, God has done the work by honoring the covenant of delivering him from the wilderness of sin. That God is faithful to do that. So ultimately, if God doesn't deliver him to like a physical sense of green pastures and still waters, that God is the green pastures in which David finds rest. 
that God is the still waters in which David's soul can be satisfied because it is thirsty, that God is his restoration, that God has perfectly walked the path of righteousness because David can't. And so now that David can, and in the same sense, God is our green pastures in which we find rest. God is our still waters in which our souls are satisfied. God is our restoration, and God has perfectly walked our, the paths of righteousness through Jesus because we could not ever do it on our own, and so now we can. And why has, done, why has God done those things? It's because God is David's God, and he's done those things for us because God is our God in Christ. David then affirms his trust in God during this needy time. Um, as we see, he says, So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. There's a slide back there that has three different translations of verses. If you could bring that up for me, Neil. There we go. Um, so this is a very unique phrase in the way that it is written that I spent so much time like trying to think, what is like an English comparison? And I couldn't think of anything. Um, so I did some research on like different translations and these different translations have been faithful to translate them correctly, but they have all kind of like brought out a, a different like aspect of this phrase. Um, so first we see in the ESV, which we're reading from this morning, it says, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. So this refers to the, David's past. So he has been privileged to behold God in his holy place, in, in the sanctuary, and has been enabled to see God's power and glory in the past. And then next, in the Holman Christian Standard Bible, it says, So I gaze on you in the sanctuary to see your strength and your glory, which then refers to the present time of David, where he is currently being reminded of the power and glory of God that has revealed to him in the sanctuary. And then in the King James version, it says, to see thy power in thy glory, so as I have seen thee in the sanctuary. So it says, to see. So it's referring to the future in which David is longing to once again be brought to the sanctuary of God, to where he can see more of God's power and more of God's glory. And so that he can be reunited in the assembly of God's children. So, so one, we see the importance of fellowship in the sanctuary um, together among believers, that, that this is part of what God uses to equip us while we are in the wilderness so that we can faithfully endure the wilderness. So like God is using the local body to prepare you for times where you're going to experience like wildernesses of the world. Um, but also the conclusion of what David has seen is seeing and will see is that God's steadfast love is greater than life. He goes on to say, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. And he can say this about God's steadfast love because God is his God. Uh, goes back to that foundation. But due to this conclusion, David will praise God with his lips for his whole life and he will serve for the glory of God and he will praise no other name with his hands or his lips other than God because God is his God. God is his one God. That's part of making God your God. So at this point, um, it seems like David, in this current situation, he maybe doesn't know how long his life is going to be. He doesn't know that, that God is for sure going to deliver him. He knows that God is capable of delivering him. He's confident in God's ability to deliver him from this wilderness. He ultimately has more confidence in the fact that God is, is going to deliver him from his, his sinful flesh and, 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 and redeem him. Um, but at this point, David doesn't know how long He's going to live. But he says, for my whole life, however long that be, I will praise you and you alone because you are my God. 
So, so David is confident of ultimate, ultimate deliverance, but not necessarily sure of circumstantial deliverance, um, which I think if we were to have to choose one, we would choose something of eternal value rather than something of limited value. Uh, but David goes on here, um, after understanding this part of the beauty of God and what God has done and what God is doing and says, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. So, so here David gives us the, the next insight into the condition of his soul to where David first declares his desire, his soul's desire for God and now he declares his soul's satisfaction in God. Um, and, and we see here um, that this satisfaction isn't just something that like, reaches just like as much as David needs because it's with fat and rich food, which is a phrase that would refer to like someone being filled up so much that they become fat, which we know if you eat too much is when you usually become fat. So David is filled with something that's more than enough. He's filled, he's fat with satisfaction. He's not just healthy with satisfaction. Like he's overflowing with satisfaction because God has provided the fat and rich food of himself. So because God is his God, David is satisfied. And so there's some other things that I particularly think about fat and rich food. I don't know about you, but fat and rich food are usually the better tasting foods, right? Like you give me a carrot or give me a chocolate cake, that chocolate cake is gone way before the carrot is. But that's just me. Maybe that's my vice. Um, but I think that's insight into this as well, that David is not only filled with more than what he needs, but he's filled with something better than anything else. So David is satisfied with God because God is better than anything else that there is to offer. And he's satisfied with God because God fills him up more than he could ever need. Which alludes back to Psalms 23, 5, where David says, my cup overflows. So this also introduces the idea of being so satisfied that you're thirsty, which is like an physical concept that we don't understand because you don't like after Thanksgiving dinner where you're like, oh man, I'm stuffed, say, ready for more. Like you're like, I need to take a break from eating. Um, but that's not our relationship with God. And I think that's something that in this quote from A.W. Tozer illustrates really well. Um, here, good old A.W. says, oh God, I have tasted thy goodness and it has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. I'm painfully conscious of my need for further grace. I'm ashamed of my lack of desire. O oh God, the triune God, I want to want thee. I long to be filled with longing. I thirst to be made more thirsty still. Show me thy glory, I pray thee, so that I may know thee indeed. Um, so at first we see that David thirsts for God, and he's satisfied with God, but it's with more than he can need. Um, but God doesn't, we're not, thirsty for God and then satisfied with God in, in a way that we don't want God more. Like we, we seek God and we're thirsty for God and we're satisfied with God in a way that gives us a desire for more of God. It's almost, if, if we go back to like that chocolate cake, it's like I've eaten enough chocolate cake and it's been really good, but that doesn't mean that the next day I'm not going to eat more because it's really good. And, and God is the greater chocolate cake. Yeah, amen. <laughs> um, so if you don't desire God right now, take the same path that David takes. One, first plead to God and know that he is your God. Pray to God to give you a desire for God. And if you don't right now want to desire God, pray that God would give you a desire to desire God. Um, because God is interested in that. 
He's not just a God of big acts. He's a, he's a God who, who changes hearts, and that begins with our desires. Um, and then, second, seek God earnestly. Three, after you seek God, you will, which is the next step, behold his power and glory. And after you do that, you will understand that his steadfast love is greater than life, and you will then desire God. To know God is to desire God. If you know God, you should desire God. And if you don't desire God, you need to know him. So the natural course that being satisfied in God will take you to is continual and joyful praise. We see that here because David says, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. So joyful and genuine praise stems from being satisfied in God. And if you aren't satisfied in God, I offer you the same advice of desiring God. First, plea to God. Second, pray that God would satisfy you. Three, seek God. Four, behold his power and glory. And then behold his steadfast love. And to do that, you will be satisfied in God. To know God is to desire God. To desire God is to then be satisfied in God. Next, we see that David remembers God upon his bed and meditates on him during the night watches. It says, when I remember you upon my bed and meditate you, meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. So no matter where David is, in this wilderness, in, 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 the, in the royal palace where he has a, a bed that, that is made of whatever he desires, or in the wilderness where he lies on a, on a dirt bed, he remembers God. Um, so wherever David is, even when he's wandering, he's unsettled, when he's most secluded, David entertains himself with thoughts of God. So David remembers God and meditates on him because God is his helper. That's what, that's what we see. He says, for you have been my help. These are the reasons that I meditate on you. Because he knows that when, when, I, when I face these situations, just like the ones I've faced before, like I've seen God's faithfulness. So because God has been faithful, I'm going to think about him because I know that God is my help. And so when David lies in bed is when David is the most vulnerable and when he's most likely to be attacked. And when David is on the night watch is when he's most aware of the, upcoming, the oncoming threat of an attack. So David once again places his trust in God as his helper. Next, David reveals to us how God is equipped to be his helper and more of why God asked God, why David asked God to be his helper. It says, For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. So David finds that he will rejoice in the shadow of God's wings. And the shadow of God's wings is this image of protection that you would find like a mother bird protecting their youngling. Which part of David saying this is is, is David admitting that he is absolutely helpless. Because no one has ever been attacked by a baby bird. And if you have, you've imagined it because it hasn't happened. Like baby birds aren't equipped with things for attacking. They aren't, aren't equipped to protect themselves. But the mother bird is fierce and they do have some equip for attacking. So David admits here that he's fully reliant on God for help, which is kind of surprising for me because when I think of David, I think of this really bad dude who's killed a lion and a bear, who has killed thousands of men, who's like almost an army in himself. But at this point, David's a little bit older, but he's still powerful. But even in the midst of like his limited power, he understands that in the, in the full realm of, of God's sovereignty and, and what the, the, the world has in, in this 
um, this threat that is, is oncoming, that David is still helpless. That even though he may be strong and capable of defending himself from man, like David can't deliver himself from the wilderness. That's, a, that's an act of God. But I still, I still kind of always imagine old David, like, taking Liam Neeson. If you know what I mean, like, like, he's been a really bad dude in the past, and he can still, like, open up a can, but, like, he's a little older. That's not really important. Uh, but it's, it's in the shadow uh, of God's wing that David is confident of God's protection and that David will sing for joy. And the next we see, David says, my soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. So this is the final condition of David's soul. So first we see that David thirsts for the Lord. Second, we see that David is satisfied in the Lord. And third, we see that David is now clinging to the Lord. Um, so this reveals David's David's earnest desire to maintain communion with God. And it's the completion of the full circle of the journey of David's soul. To first desire, then satisfaction, then clinging. But the word cling here is the same verb used in Genesis 2, 24, where it says, A man shall leave his father and mother and shall hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So clinging here is is described in the setting and, and uh, in, in like the setting of a relationship that is defined by like intimacy and love and, and commitment uh, as a husband and wife should love each other and, and as a husband should cling to his wife. This is how David is clinging to his God because God is his God. But the good news of David clinging to God is what comes next where it says, your right hand upholds me. That's the good news, because it's not David's earnest desire for God that maintains this communion, but it's God's strength and protection that upholds him there. It's God's power drawing us near. Um, we even, we, we read or, or, or sang earlier in, in the song, uh, Psalm 145, it says, He upholds the one who is stumbling. Like, I didn't know that that song was going to be sung this morning, um, but I think it emphasizes the point that, like, it's so good that God upholds us because it's not that we conditionally stumble, but apart from God, we are constantly stumbling. So it's only the, the assurance that we have that God is holding us that allows us to be in a constant and joyful communion with God. And that's good news because God is steadfast. God is never changing. And God is faithful to keep his covenant with us, even though we are not faithful to God. We're not faithful to desire God alone. We're not faithful to earnestly seek God, but God is faithful. And so that's good news for us. And then next, um, we, we, we've seen where, where God has been David's desire and his comfort, and God has been David's satisfaction and protection, and now we see that God is David's um, vindication. So this now, the, the focus leaves David and his need for protection and, and his, his need for the intimacy and communion and upholding of God and goes to the focus of vindication upon David's enemies, uh, which it feels like really strange transition here, um, but it's here for a reason. And if it's something that like I could choose, I just would like cut it right here. Like no enemy stuff. Like that doesn't seem gospel oriented, but it's here for a reason. So let's look at that. It says, but those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals, but the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult. 
So in this, we see that those who seek to destroy David's life will come to their death, that their life will be destroyed. And that being given over to the power of the sword is kind of this idea of justice being served, like that they are going to get what, what is coming to them. Not karma, because karma doesn't exist, but God's justice, which is more powerful than karma could ever be, um, because God is just, and God, God is real. So one, that's more powerful than karma, because karma doesn't exist. And then two, um, because God is, is all-powerful and he's, he's, he's just. And so these things will come to happen. And so the, the enemies, the anointed king, are God's enemies. And so because of that, these enemies will be destroyed. And we see, we see also that the, the, the rain and the destruction that David's enemies have, have caused is also going to come to an end because part of how Absalom was able to cast David out of Israel is the fact that he spread lies about David not being the anointed king of Israel and he spread lies that David wasn't a good king. Um, so here it says, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. The reign of the enemies is going to be completely over. The effects of their reign and their, their overthrowing of the throne it is, is going to end and God's will is going to be accomplished. And I think it's so hard to, to see like just the, the sweetness and the endearment that David has for God and balance that with like David desiring destruction for his enemies because we're not in, in, in a time where like we've destroyed our enemies. Like this is this is a context where David has been told by God like to destroy people for God's will, but we as part of people who who are in in the new covenant, who are in a covenant where where we sometimes um only view grace, um don't understand that that God is glorified in the destruction of his enemies because God is just. And we can't have it one way or the other. We can't have this endearment and and trusting in the promises of God without the destruction of God's enemies. like God has to be just in both. Because if he's not just in honoring his word for his children, he can't be just in destroying his, his enemies. And if he's not just in destroying his enemies, he can't be just in destroying or in honoring the promises made for his children. Like God is both completely, and we may not understand it, but it is good because God is good. Um, so part of me wishes that that wasn't in there, but Part of me knows that like God has it in there for a reason because God is like sovereign or something. But also, we can take joy because we may not have enemies who are threatening to kill us physically. We're not being persecuted. We're not being cast out into wilderness where we're, we're on our own to have to find food and, and shelter and water. But we have very present enemies. We have a lot of present enemies. We have people who are not children of God who are enemies. We have an enemy of sin. We have the enemy of death, the grave. But God will defeat all of those enemies as well. Like, that's good news, that, that if God is faithful to defeat the enemies of David, he's going to be faithful to defeat our enemies, which may not be our sons trying to destroy us, but it is sin, which is constantly trying to entangle and destroy us. It's death, which is, is, is going to happen. It's imminent. And it's the grave, which is something that confines us. But God, through Jesus, has defeated all of those enemies on our behalf so that we can have hope and so that we can rejoice joyfully. Like, that's good news. And so today, as we transition to the Lord's Supper, this psalm gives us a lot to remember and a lot to be thankful for. 
And while there is much to see of the godly characteristics of David in this psalm, there's much more to see of the better and truer David, our better king of Jesus. So it is because of Jesus that we are able to joyfully experience God's power and his glory and to know his steadfast love. It's because of Jesus that we can be satisfied, that we have a God who loves us enough to give up of himself so that we can have. Like Jesus is the reason that we can be satisfied. And he doesn't do it in a way that's just just enough. He does it in a way that's more than enough. And he's the sweet wine, and which is better than all other wine. He is good, and he gives us of he gives of himself so that we may have. It's because of the inheritance that we share with Jesus that we're able to be confident in God's protection on our behalf. And it's because of the unity that we have in Jesus that we can be sure that God will hold us near. It's because of the death that Jesus died in our place that we are no longer enemies of God, but are able to be called his children. It is the life that Jesus lived that we cannot, so that we can inherit the righteousness that we cannot obtain on our own. Jesus lived a life in which he perfectly sought after the Lord, in which he perfectly desired the Lord, in which he perfectly praised God with joyful lips, in which he perfectly rested in the protection of the Father, in which he held perfect communion with God, and perfectly endured the wilderness of this world because we could not, and so now we can. That's something that we are able to have now because Jesus has accomplished it for us. It is only through Jesus that we are able to have a joyful communion with God in which we can confidently say, Oh God, you are my God. So today as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we don't require that you be a member of our local body of church here at Believers. Um, we don't require that you've attended this, this seminar. We don't, we don't require any of those like qualifications. But we do ask that if you partake with us in the Lord's Supper, that, that you be someone who has placed your faith and your trust in accomplished work of Jesus on your behalf. Because if you haven't, it doesn't really make sense for you to celebrate what God has done for you through Jesus. Um, so it's not an idea of us wanting to, to act like we're better than you for this reason. It just doesn't make sense for you to take up the Lord's Supper and celebrate what God has done for you if God hasn't done those things for you yet on your behalf. But if you haven't placed your trust in Christ, um, if you have questions about that, or you're interested, talk to me, talk to an elder, or talk to someone who you see joyfully remembering what God has done for them by taking the Lord's Supper. Talk to one of us. We would love to talk to you about that. Um, We're not going to judge you. We're not going to say, well, we're better than you because we've done this. Because we know that it's only because of God, like it's because of God's righteousness, that we are able to partake in the goodness of the Lord's Supper. So there's nothing that we offer. It's not on, on our own merit that we're able to be in a joyful communion with God but it's all upon what God has done. So we are in no place to judge you. And if someone does judge you, go talk to someone else and tell that person about that person judging you. (laughs) So we're going to take the Lord's Supper. Um, I'm going to pray for us and take time among yourselves to to pray to to our our good shepherd and our our gracious father and and thank him and praise him for what he's done for you um, through Christ. Then come and, and take a cracker, which represents the, the body of Christ broken for you, um, the sacrifice that he made on your behalf, and, and take some of the juice, which represents the blood of Christ shed for you um, so that you could be covered um, in his righteousness. And then return to your seats, and, and we'll continue to worship together. Uh, let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that because of 
of who you are because of your faithfulness and your goodness that we can call upon you um, confidently knowing that you are our God. God, that you are that you are real, that you exist, and, and you are for us. Um, God, that, that, that is good news, and I pray that our worship today and, and the days to come would, would flow from that, that we'd be confident in, in the assurance that that you have accomplished what needs to be done for us to to be in covenant with you, God, that that our our place among you has been won for us by Christ on the cross uh, through his life, um, which was perfect, through his death, which was substitutionary, and, and his resurrection, which we were able to partake in. Um, God, I pray today as we celebrate the Lord's Supper that, that we would we would praise you for what you've done, and we would look to your second coming and what you are going to continue to do and um, the full redemption that we have in Christ. God, we love you. We thank you so much that you've loved us first and you've made a way for us to um, be in joyful communion with you.